Herbert Hoover's reputation as president is quite often thought of in less favorable terms, having presided over the United States as it entered into the depths of the Great Depression in the 1930s. After the economic boom of the 1920s, the contrast was stark and increasingly clear in Americans' minds as Hoover's limited attempts at intervening in the economy failed to turn things around. Judging his accomplishments in hindsight, however, including his successful business career as a mining engineer, his achievements in relief aid during World War I, and especially contrasting the lackluster performance of the U.S. economy during FDR's succeeding terms of eight years until World War II, Hoover comes out as a highly competent man caught up in extremely unfortunate circumstances. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. A military industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time together. Hello, welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Uh, we've got some real hardcore uh, 20th century content for once. Uh, and I am joined by uh, a slightly short uh, but prominent crew. We've got Adam Smith and Hans Lander here. Hey, guys. Hello. We've got a uh, and- 21st century donation on the blockchain that would have been really handy back in the 20th century, but they had the Fed. And uh, you couldn't do that, and they had the gold standard, so they had the depression, and it's all Hoover's fault. That That, guy. That's your cue. Yeah, today we're going to be talking about Herbert Hoover, who I'm going to say, you know, if you you watch your old uh, McLaughlin group uh, episodes, you'll be woke on the fact that Warren G. Harding was actually our first black president. However, uh, Herbert Hoover was our first hustler uh, president. Uh, Herbert Hoover was honestly the the guy who, post probably the founding fathers, was the most uh, objectively impressive, I guess I'll say, uh, guy going into the presidency, uh, having come from nothing and accomplished just a really absurd uh, amount, uh, mostly in kind of the uh, the private. Uh, business and also uh, public service uh, domains before he became president um, and yet has kind of a really terrible uh, reputation uh, for a a U.S. president. Uh, I don't know when I when I think of Herbert Hoover kind of a priori the first thing that comes to mind is like Great Depression Hoovervilles. Hoover Dam I guess but I think that was built during Roosevelt's time. Yeah, that was kind of a uh, that was kind of a thank you. Well, I think it should be. I think well, we it was, it was the Boulder stuff. Dam, I think, and then it was like a committee of Republicans that got it to be renamed. I think that was it well. Wasn't even so, really... yeah, Hoover, Hoover had laid a lot of the groundwork, and I think on the episode we did a, a lot of the initial um, 
planning with the at the time was the Army Corps of Engineers and some of these other federal planning commissions on large dams, um, some of which had been built under you know, Hoover, and he had kind of organized uh, and you know, a lot of that groundwork really for the Hoover Dam was laid in his era. And uh, FDR actually uh, uh, thought Hoover might be a potential presidential candidate for the Democratic Party at, uh, at one point. He was, a, he was a fan of Hoover, as many people were. They thought he was uh, an extremely smart, gifted guy that uh, could potentially kind of bridge a political divide at the time in the country. Well, everybody thought that Hoover was fucking amazing because Herbert Hoover was fucking amazing. Uh, like, let's, let's just draw that line in the sand uh, right now. Uh, you know, maybe going back to the beginning, he starts off essentially as an orphan. Uh, his, uh, his father dies when he's six. His mother dies when he's 10. Uh, and he sort of bums around uh, various relatives uh through like various Indian reservations and like a pig farm and uh, eventually ends up in the ass end of nowhere in uh, the ass end of uh, Oregon. Uh, not exactly a auspicious uh, beginning, um, but he, uh, he sort of has his first uh, taste of, uh, I don't know if you can call it success, but he seems to figure out what he's all about um, at the ripe old age of 13. Uh, when he gets employed um, just kind of as a, a, a gopher uh, at a, a local real estate company uh, in in uh, Oregon. And he does a really good job. And you just kind of see this pattern again and again where he's put into some situation and through a combination of just the, the correct lies and raw competency, but absolutely no charisma whatsoever. He ends up doing just a fantastic job and bootstrapping himself up into the next uh, position. So he, he, like when I say he's the first hustler uh, president, like he's basically one step north of selling mixtapes at this point. Uh, he's writing, uh, writing real estate ad copy, and then he comes up with this scheme where he uh, rents out uh, houses uh, to the people who come to Oregon, which is still essentially the frontier even uh, at this point, um, for them to stay while they try to find a, uh, a plot of uh, land uh, to stay at. And this does really well. Uh, he runs into this mining engineer um, who is looking, I don't know, probably for whatever they mine in Oregon. And this seems to be the introduction to the next uh, step back when like America had a kind of uh, reasonably intelligible uh, industrial base where it was self-contained. Yes, we take the iron ore, we smelt it, we make iron, we make railroads, we use the railroads to move the ore, we use the ore to make this nice uh, build out of the, uh, the nation's capital stock. So he kind of takes a uh, takes a liking to um, this notion of industry, and he's still like 17 years old at the time. So again, being the consummate hustler, he's uh, he's looking for an in 
Uh, he's looking for some place where he can go and uh, study and make something of himself and get into this next step, not be writing a uh, you know, glorified real estate agent uh, copy for the rest of his life. He wants to go into mining. And he hears of this uh, this cool uh, startup university with free tuition uh, called Stanford. He ends up being literally the first guy at Stanford. It's not just the inaugural class. He literally shows up uh, two months early so that he can set up this series of campus uh, schemes where he's got a corner on the uh, the newspaper delivery in the uh, the dormitories. He runs the laundry service. He's got uh, a couple of uh, lackeys that uh, help uh, other students register, kind of similar to the Oregon scheme. People show up on campus. And it's like, oh hey buddy, go over here. Like my friend will uh, my friend will help set you up. It's just, you know, a small fee, but it's vastly more convenient. He continues by not just uh, trying out for the football team, which he fails at completely. He just does not have a very athletic spirit, but he actually gets himself installed as the team manager and invents uh, people. I'm told the big game is a thing, uh, the uh, the UC uh, Berkeley versus Stanford thing. I think some people might be able to speak to that a little bit. He invents this thing. He decides to gin up this uh, this rivalry and make some uh, make some cash on the side at uh, at uh, concessions and uh, sort of running the uh, the ticket gamut and uh, turning the uh, you know Stanford football isn't like isn't USC football but it or uh, or uh, what am I thinking SEC football but it's a thing and he gets a lock on that at literally the earliest uh, point that you could get. Meanwhile, he's still studying at his putative uh, field of study where he's not doing that well in uh, classes, but he does manage to graduate and uh, in his intended field of geology so that he can be some sort of a uh, geologist, mining engineer, uh, surveyor. D didn't he start uh, in mechanical engineering and then switch to mining engineering or whatever they called it back then? You know, I don't have that in my notes that's that's completely plausible but yeah i mean he I had all he, he had already had sort of the the mining uh connection i think it at the time especially it was kind of a fine line between the machinery and feeding the machinery so it's like what else are you going to use mining equipment for but he tries to get a, a cushy government job which falls through uh and uh ends up having to hitchhike uh, up and down this year in Nevada's just basically from mineshaft to mineshaft, seeing if anyone actually uh, has a job available and none being available. He decides to go uh, again, the hustling and just start digging shit out of the ground. He gets a uh, job as a mucker, uh, which is uh, somebody who uh, when you haul ore out of the ground ore is just rock mixed with other shit. So the mucker is the guy who takes shovel after shovel of just wet shit uh, that other people have dug out of the ground and uh, hops it into a uh, ore car um, so that it can be brought to the next step in the, uh, in the uh, processing pipeline. 
but his ambition cannot be constrained, um, and he's still obviously looking for something more in keeping with his, uh, I guess, expertise, uh, and manages to talk himself into being a clerk at uh, a, a San Francisco-based uh, mining firm. And they just keep promoting him uh, until uh, he hears about this job in uh, the Australian outback. He's like, well, sure, that sounds like fun. Let's go to, from the ass end of nowhere to the ass end of the ass end of nowhere. Lies about his age. Yeah, I have no knowledge of how this happens, but just, you know, if Hollywood is any guide, there was a flyer somewhere on the outside of a saloon where there was a sort of a mangy looking horse that he had to look past. And he picked this up and he's like, Eureka, I've found my calling. And he gets on the next ship to somewhere across the planet, which takes several months. And he almost dies on the journey. And then he eventually gets off and there's a sort of cinematic opening of like the sky where he gets off the ship and he's now found his calling. Something to that and his calling, by the way, is, is really in London because he's got to take the steamer from San Francisco to London to get hired as a walk-in uh, to be sent to the Australian outback. So he's basically done a, a circumnavigation uh, in terms of mileage, at least at this point. So in Australia, it's basically a hellhole. Uh, especially at the time, but you know, even now, no offense to Aussie guys, but like the well, outback, there's just, I, I don't think that anyone really goes there for, uh, for fun, just to it, hang I, out. And it, I don't know if it's a ground. desert desert, but I mean, if you've watched Mad Max or any sort of nature program of the outback, it pretty much is like what you'd, uh, you'd find in the really dry parts of Africa or the savanna. It's um, it's very it's very hot, obviously, and inhospitable. And I've always wondered this about Australia: at what point did the population transition from just being a bunch of ex-cons to "quote unquote" normal people? Like I've I've never understood how that worked, because Australians today are are not like you know hardened criminal types, but there must have been a point where they were more like that, and that was, I think, uh, closer back then. So. I don't know if that was the culture or if it was a a, a standard standardized country at that point. I think they had, they'd stopped that practice, I believe, and they just got regular immigrants yeah. at that point. I mean, at some point they switched over to. I'm not an Australian uh, expert, and I can hear people screaming upside down at me uh, for my uh, you know pretensions here. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and say that the the difference between like a prison versus you're stuck outside of this mine uh, in the middle of Western Australia or whatever is pretty minimal once you get down to it. Mm -hmm. So he has a kind of a reputation for being a hard ass uh, when he's in Australia, not like uh, in the sense of domineering with his own authority, but he's got a mission to be like the best damn mine manager uh, that he can be, and uh, he doesn't mind really cracking some heads uh, in order to uh, accomplish this. So he fires a bunch of people. He uh, he tries to strong arm some vendors in order to get a better deal. Uh, he replaces some vendors with others. He imports uh, some cheaper 
labor and works them for longer hours has a couple of strikes but he's doing fantastic he's uh boosting output at these uh these mines and he gets into kind of a uh, a pissing match with one of his coworkers that uh ends up with him being kind of not quite fired but you know the joke about oh if you uh if you piss off the wrong person in the Air Force or whatever, you get uh, stationed to some NORAD station outside Fairbanks. He manages to get uh, sent to uh, to China. Uh, reassigned uh, is on a semi-voluntary basis. Uh, at a time where China is obviously a little bit more civilized than Australia, but... I mean, late 1800s China, it's incredibly chaotic. They're always at the cusp of uh, just gigantic famines and massacres. They don't speak English. They're not an Anglophone uh, country, uh, implying Australia is. Yeah, and they were going through but, a lot of civil war as well. Uh, they were going was... through the Boxer Rebellion when he was there, correct? Yeah, I mean, as soon as he shows up, the uh, Society of Righteous and Harmonious Fists. <laughs> yeah, is, sounds right. Which is its own... <laughs> Like that, I don't know. We, Chinese history is like uh, Jesus. This again, uh, but yeah, thousand you know, thousand dragons, cool you know, swarmed the sky, and the emperor was reborn, or something like that. That's pretty much all of Chinese literature, or sorry, history. Yeah. So the the leader of this uh, this cult declares himself the uh, the younger brother, I think, of Jesus. Um, who has received a uh, revelation that uh, they need to uh, start a bunch of boxing gyms uh, and also uh, beat the shit out of uh, all of these foreigners. Which, you know, I, I'm i not saying the guy uh, had some good points, but, uh, you know, I, I can kind of see how uh, he might have gotten that idea you know, in that context. In that context, that probably was a good idea. So... The Chinese start wilding out uh, as they are wont to do. Um, like every hundred years or so, like clockwork, there's just some gigantic cult and rebellion that just wipes out like a third of the population of China. It's it's spooky. Some new dynasty takes over, and yeah, some new set of ethnic quote unquote ethnic Han come in and run the show. So, so they start. Uh, killing every Westerner that they can find. And uh, the Europeans kind of barricade themselves in this uh, Western uh, Western quarter of this uh, city of uh, Tianjin. I, I can't slash won't uh, correctly pronounce uh, Chinese uh, names. I, I, I call that a microaggression. It's like this little thing that I do to imply that, you know, they're not welcome. Uh, but uh, they barricade themselves, and uh, Hoover is like running around uh, ferrying supplies per, uh, personally, uh, taking pot shots at uh, rioters slash marauders uh, from the uh, the city walls. And while everything is on fire, making some pretty sweet deals. So he's like, "Hey, bro, you know we're gonna die anyway." Uh, so. How about uh, how about that mine shaft? Uh, if we get out of this alive, you know, I can get you. Uh, you know, it might or may not be on fire by the time we get there, so probably I'm, I deserve some sort of a discount, right? 
so he signs a uh, he signs a bevy of deals uh, that uh, manages to get, make him in charge or his company uh, theoretically in charge uh, of uh, most of the mining industry of that region of China, <laughs> uh, which is a hell of an act. He's like, you know, you can see how he's always got his uh, eye on kind of the next thing. It's like, sure, we are literally surrounded by a mob that's burning down the city, and we may all die. But what if we don't? Where, Where's the ore, though? So this obviously hits some complications um, because people were like, look, you know, there, there's a lot of smoke in the air. We all thought we were going to die. The younger brother of Jesus was, like, personally promising to behead us. Uh, maybe this deal doesn't necessarily hold up in court. Maybe we take it to the uh, the British legal system several thousand miles away. Uh, and Hoover, you know, he kind of has this pattern of uh, when things don't go his way, he, he kind of just, I, I wouldn't, this is kind of an ongoing thing. I don't know whether to call these things kind of lies or if, kind of internally he uh, thinks about it more as a bluff because he will go to uh, property offices and he'll just kind of say, hey, yeah, uh, you know, we have this deal and uh, I've got the signature on some paperwork, which is forged and doesn't exist. Uh, and, you know, you just need to sign over the deed to me right now. Uh, also, you know, your, your your wife is lovely. Here's some jewelry for her. Uh, and here's, you know, something for yourself. Uh, you know, make the kids happy. So he he ends up uh, not quite swindling because he had kind of these deals. It's just that he kind of made them stick through semi-ethical means uh, and ran the series of uh property scans scams like old western style uh you know first season of deadwood uh, property deed scams where they end up actually in charge of uh most of the uh the chinese mines there and he gets promoted back to london where he's kind of at this point hit the uh hit the big time so already at this point he's uh kind of got this uh, uh, high-powered uh, emigre, or um, what's the uh, term I'm looking for, expat thing going on, where it's queer that this is a guy who knows how to go to some country full of heathen foreigners and actually get something done, uh, and not in a, like, you know, kind of... The modern expats, it's like, oh, yes, you work for Goldman Sachs, like... Okay, I show up with a suitcase full of cocaine, and somehow, magically, more T-bonds get sold. Well, yeah, what's also interesting today about being an expat is globalization has created cities that are practically uh, fungible today. I mean, you, you get, there's a lot of funny memes on Twitter, but they're true about how historical architecture... You know, the Chinese had these like flowing roofs, and the Russians had the onion... Uh, castle things and then you go to germany and there's a lot of wood now it's all steel and glass uh and so not only that but people speak the same language the internet allows you to translate things instantaneously on a mobile device uh there's air travel to move back and forth very quickly 
But back when Hoover was doing this, you had to get on a ship. There was no communication, a huge language barrier, a huge culture barrier, uh, and you're surrounded. And there's really no diplomatic core to protect you because if there's a problem, you know, you just get thrown down an alleyway and nobody really knows what happened to you uh, as opposed to today where there's a lot of GPS tracking. It's just a, a completely different experience today being in a foreign country. And it's, it's not easy per se, but it is a lot easier for sure. Well, yeah, and he, a lot of, well, he was like, I, I think he was really reliant on his wife too. His wife, learn to speak eight languages fluently and she was sort of his uh his accomplice in all of his uh his hustling activities i think it, at some point during this drama or immediately afterwards he's able to acquire most of the silver mines in the entirety of burma uh <laughs> just through the like the connections he makes during this period in china he, he him and his wife are able to uh, leverage those connections, effectively communicate with people without translators, and he's able to acquire a huge chunk of the mining industry in one of the most mineral-rich parts of the world. And not only this, but like when you talk about somebody with that level of kind of empirical business acumen, uh, you sort of get this impression that that sort of personality is usually this kind of like back slapping deal maker like oh hey phil like how's the wife we still on for golf on thursday like herbert hoover by all accounts has absolutely none of that uh like he doesn't like making small talk he has like three stories that are in his repertoire that uh he is willing to after much uh much probing relates to people he kind of makes a habit of pissing people off by getting into arguments over bullshit with them. Um, he, he kind of sounds like he actually has a little bit of the tism, uh, especially like, you know, not not to levels that cause him to be hyper focused on minutia because he really is a big picture guy. But, you know, maybe just a little bit of the burgers where he just the interpersonal relationships don't really make as much sense to him as the the kind of um, business structure or uh, or like personal promotion structure, um, corporate structure that he's trying to navigate for himself. Which is kind of an odd thing because you don't really see that archetype in a lot of places. Um, there's certainly like other uh, examples of business magnates who um, kind of had a reputation for um, you know being hard bargainers um, but uh, there's not a lot that I've seen where people just kind of consistently relate how much they actually disliked chatting with Herbert Hoover well back then uh, this is a, a huge generalization of course but I think the alpha male CEO archetype was more of a thing than it is today especially with the dominance of the tech sector being the source of the majority of the, the richest people in America uh, selecting for really spurgy type people. Um, I mean, just go down the list. You, you have very un, untraditional charisma or traditionally uncharismatic types leading the, the pack. You got Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, the Google guys, um, the list goes on. But back then, you know, you had 
I don't know. John D. Rockefeller is sort of a, a tough one to put in a box, but people like J.P. Morgan, uh, people like uh, a lot of the, the railroad barons uh, were very aggressive alpha male types. And it's often the case in politics that you have that as well. And I think that was what Hoover uh, stood out as, as being an engineer. He was uh, a little bit of a more analytical type, uh, perhaps like Carter in a way. Part- Carter was uh, personality-wise not the most aggressive type person uh, and, and not a dumb man. He actually had a degree, I believe, in uh, nuclear engineering or something like that from the Naval College. Yeah, they don't put dumb guys in nuclear submarines. You hope not. You, you know, but, but Hoover yeah. reminds a lot of Carnegie actually he seems to have the same mentality that kind of the rags to riches story at least yeah and and Carnegie um, was a very methodical detail oriented um, sometimes shy but uh, unafraid man he was extremely brave but he wasn't boisterous he wasn't prone to anger like Morgan was um, and he wasn't super cold and domineering like um, Rockefeller or Vanderbilt um, or Mellon, you know, uh, th- there was this fine, very fine middle ground that uh, and, and appreciation for the working man and for industry that I think Carnegie definitely imbued, which is why he, he's maintained a much more sterling reputation um, years after the fact. Uh, and, and Hoover definitely comes from that same line of thinking i think the humble but um hard-headed uh the quiet but brave um uh, business leader who is able to identify problems very quickly is able to build relationships very quickly um, and is able to work with governments very quickly uh you know this kind of explains how he would govern when he was actually president later um, and certainly how he worked when he was commerce secretary he had this fundamental belief, and I've brought this up before, um, in this ideology called associationalism. And he 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 believed uh, that public-private partnerships should be the basis of uh, large-scale business conducted in America. And he based that on his interpretation of the 19th century and development of business and development of industry transportation networks, uh, public works over the course of the 19th century. Uh, and you know, he also very much believed in the power of creating voluntary associations within industries, within professions, within um, you know, various skill sets. So you know, having national associations of engineers of a specific type, national association of chemical engineers, national association of you know, the home lending market, all, all these kinds of things. He, you know, so they could interface with the government. And he believed in creating a superstructure that was, you know, very cordial and also very um, fluid between government and business so that there was a very easy interface. You know, he, you, know, you can kind of see how he learns that that's so important because he's doing so much international business. And I think he very quickly understood that most states operate effectively the same way in regards to business. And in order to have a good working relationship that delivers results, you know, he's, he's very much a value added guy. How do I 
deliver more minerals and more precious metals to the world? How do I, you know, deliver knowledge? You know, he ends up writing a lot of books. I think the leading textbook at one point on mining and mining engineering. How do I deliver? Oh yeah, effectively. And how and do in I in that in that book? Like you've got really the the kind of nugget of his self conception of what he's all about, um, right. which is very Randian. This little uh, pull quote here. This is uh, Herbert Hoover. I recommend you look this up on uh, archive.org. Um, it's uh, you know, it's a textbook, but uh, it's it's very interesting because it's. Uh, I feel like textbooks were better written in the old days. It makes it much more comprehensible what's going on. His commentary was interesting, but uh, anyway, his uh, quote: "To the engineer falls the work of creating from the dry bones of scientific fact the living body of industry. It is he whose intellect and direction bring to the world the comforts and necessities of daily need." Unlike the doctor, his is not the constant struggle to save the weak. Unlike the soldier, destruction is not his prime function. Unlike the lawyer, quarrels are not his daily bread. Engineering is the profession of creation and of construction, of stimulation of human effort and accomplishment. Which is like a very, you know, Promethean uh, vision here. Yeah. Uh, very, very Faustian. It reminds me of those uh, school newsreels or movie reels that they would make fun of on the Simpsons, like going back to when America was very proud of uh, all this sort well, of masculine. There's a whole, there's a know. whole YouTube channel called Periscope Films. Um, very great channel. I, I recommend you guys watch it. It has all those old kinds of newsreels and educational videos, and it has footage inside factories on railroads, yeah. you know, lines and, and at parades and, um, you know, I, I think that the tin industry, Hoover, what will it yeah, come up with next? You know, stuff like that, just black and white. Hoover, Hoover came of age and existed in like the American gold, you know, the really the beginnings of the American golden era and the and the foundational time when America comes on, finally comes into the world as the dominant um, industrial power and the dominant knowledge center in the world not in how to achieve scientific goals but how to build like a state apparatus around it how to build a business and legal environment apparatus around it no one else was even close to that and so hoover i think you know really got to live through this just amazing crucial time in the country and uh, you know, had knew that like, there there was no college scholarship or anything like that. So he had to figure out how to add value and build value so that he could then live the life he wanted to live and then continue to add value to the United States, to the world. Uh, that seemed to be his like real driving force. You know, if you read uh, there's this book I've been slowly working through. It's just called Essays on the History of Transportation Technology, and it's um, kind of compiled by uh, this professor named Emery Kemp uh, for, I think, University of West Virginia. Uh, it's on LibGen, uh, easily findable. And you get this sense through, like, reading uh, throughout the 19th century and early 20th century, kind of that, that complete horizontal uh, integration of industry from from iron ore to railroad to rail, you know, so then the railroad can deliver more iron ore to a, you know, a rot casting 
uh, plant and you, know, you can deliver products that can be then used to deliver something else like that whole system and the legal environment around it, the patent system around it. Hoover kind of grew up when that was at the forefront of everyone's mind because it was new and it was this new way of actually opening up opportunity. So his whole life was kind of envisioning the world as one giant opportunity and you know wherever he saw that there was some need or some management or some consulting that was going un undone he immediately stepped in kind of without without hesitation to do that thing and even if he had to employ slightly unethical means to do it it was worth it because you could then add value you could not only increase your personal fortune but you could expand the economy, you could expand the market of opportunity for, for others, which could then, in theory, increase your value. And that was kind of the thinking that Carnegie had for the wider American economy. How do I create a system? How do I add value to this system that it'll then not only help other people, but grow my own power and grow my ability to then add more value back into it? I mean, let's be honest. This is the same justification that mono every monopolist makes. Just about like Bill Gates yeah, sure. would say this. Uh, Rockefeller certainly would say this. He used to say that competition was like the greatest evil ever invented, or something like that. Um, and it was the monopolist uh, role to uh, ring out those inefficiencies and then deliver back the, I guess, the producer surplus or something back to the consumer. Uh, but it was. Um, very common thing, uh, but in their defense, um, maybe not Rockefellers, but at least Carnegie's, he did build libraries and, and uh, build up a lot of the, I think, social capital institutions that a lot of his uh, peers at the time would, were not doing. Uh, but at the same time, again, you you look at how he competed against his competitors, and he was pretty vicious. There was a pretty famous case where, because uh, a lot of what Carnegie uh, was Carnegie Steel, maybe not U.S. Steel, but Carnegie Steel's um, business was selling steel to the railroad industry, and one of the things he—it was just a—it was a trick he played on his customers was that uh, his competitors were undercutting him at a point in time with uh, the rates in which they were charging for basically the commodity uh, rail uh, rails that were being put on the tracks, uh, and Carnegie was producing the same stuff, but what he what he told his customers was that, well, you need to buy from me because my stuff is homogenized. Uh, and it was just this bullshit term. Uh, I mean, you know, literally it means like, you know, everything's the same, but it was scientifically not, there was no basis for it. Uh, the competitor's uh, steel was just as good as his, but he was able to push out the competition with marketing nonsense like that. And he was also pretty tough on the unions. Um, so, you know, there, there's a lot of perspectives here, but um, and and I'm a I'm an overall fan of what he accomplished, obviously, but I uh, just wanted to add some nuance to that. Yeah, and I you know I think this 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 is an era of imperfect guys trying to dive into industries and dive into opportunities that hadn't really been done on such a mass scale yet, um, and so you know. You can see where it might have gone wrong or there was some unethical methods employed, but ultimately I would say that Hubert, you know, Herbert Hoover uh, delivering more medals to the world 
was ultimately a, a better thing and more metal to the United States was ultimately, you know, the best outcome. Well, he certainly contributed a little bit more than uh, the community organizer in chief. I'll, I'll just say that. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's it's ironic because uh, that ends up being not a small part of what he became best known for. So uh, by this point, he's got he's a very wealthy man um, from his mining endeavors. Uh, he's sort of bumming around. He, he manages to get an appointment uh, to the Stanford Board of Trustees um, as sort of a, uh, a stepping stone to what he hopes will be higher political office, which he's wildly, uh, wildly discouraged from. He's like, given his subsequent political history, him running for something like governor of a U.S. state would be comical. But his bacon is saved uh, because World War One happens. And you have a situation when a war breaks out, even if you're not a... Uh, a belligerent like obviously if you're a german citizen in london and war breaks out nothing great is going to happen you're probably not going to get lynched but you're uh you're going to be at a minimum interred probably in some not so nice uh accommodations but even as citizens of a uh, a neutral country you still run into a huge amount of problems where like okay all the well i guess they didn't have flights all the uh, ocean travel is canceled because all those ships are now uh, converted into troop transports. They're now uh, repurposed to haul cargo for the war effort. International finance gets screwed up. So suddenly you can't uh, cash in your, uh, you can't get money into pounds and vice versa because, uh, you know, the, the gold reserves, everything was gold backed at the time are, uh, sort of under, uh, embargo or, uh, pre-committed that the country is trying to maintain control of its exchange rate um, and its foreign currency reserves so that it can buy war material. Things just kind of suck. Uh, and there's a huge, uh, American business population in Europe uh, and specifically in the UK. And they're like, what the fuck do I do? Uh, my uh, traveler's checks are no good. The hotel is shutting down. I can't get a ship back. I'm just going to be a hobo pretty soon, uh, assuming that I don't get impressed uh, into the uh, the UK uh, armed forces. So Herbert Hoover decides to make this his problem. <laughs> uh, he immediately uh, forms uh, this uh, Committee for the Assistance of American Travelers and basically forges the endorsement of the local uh, U.S. ambassador, who was at best sort of neutral towards the endeavor. But Hoover implies that essentially he is now the American uh, ambassador to London, at least as far as uh, uh, sort of consular services for American citizens are concerned. He spent a lifetime getting these international business contacts uh, that he now puts to use. So now when he needs a ship, he can call up his buddy who's been shipping ore for him uh, for you know 20 years at this point, and he can uh, get him to commit to actually supplying a ship to get some of these people home. 
he knows how to move money around even uh, in and out of third world hell holes like China or the Australian outback. Uh, and so he's able to wrangle international credit markets and uh, basically write a series of IOUs uh, that enables him to fund this endeavor out of essentially nothing uh, until he can raise some funds uh, back home. Uh, to try to move uh, this like hundred thousand or so Americans uh, out of uh, out of the UK, which is just logistically, if you imagine doing something like this, it's it's basically like a wartime evacuation of a small sized American city, and you can imagine what an incredible disaster that would be. Granted, when you're talking about American businessmen and tourists in London in the early 1900s, you're probably dealing with a higher than median caliber of individual. But the logistical difficulty of coordinating all of that and dealing with, oh, but I need to bring my dog, Sparky, he's got his medication, and oh, my wife is sick too, and oh, my, my son is in Scotland, and I can't go until he gets back. It's just... Everything is set up to be a catastrophe, and yet he ends up uh, pulling it off, and everybody basically gets where they need to be. Like, it sounds relatively simple, like, just, oh, just get everybody on the boat, but he coordinates the whole thing, uh, floats the funding, acquires the funding, seals the deal, and delivers the product. Meanwhile, Germany is rampaging across uh, Belgium. Uh, and there develops this sort of humanitarian crisis where Germany, it's already fairly clear that their food supplies are going to be pretty insufficient um, in order to prosecute this war. Uh, there's all these Belgian civilians that are effectively under martial law, where a lot of their uh, country has been blown up. There are still uh, partisans. Uh, operating, some of them actually Belgian army, some of them not, and is kind of pissed off that there's all these German troops. So there's a series of atrocities, some of which are um, heavily played up and propagandized, um, some of which actually happened. But there's sort of a growing uh, food crisis in Belgium, where Germany doesn't have the physical ability, uh, even if they had the desire to take those precious calories that could be feeding their soldiers and civilian population and to try to uh, feed the Belgian population. Even if they wanted to do that, it's uh, pretty clear that they wouldn't really be able to do this. So everybody agrees like, okay, we don't really want to screw over the Belgians, but there's sort of this... Uh, uh, back and forth about the British don't want to actually send food to the continent. They don't, they're kind of neutral on the idea of allowing food to be sent to the continent because just like uh, contemporary American foreign policy, it's like if Iraq is starving, uh, then that's uh, good for you somehow because those, uh, those calorie uh, deficits um, somehow weaken the regime, at least in the abstract. But they, af after a large amount of arm bending and negotiation, agree that uh, America um, will be allowed to ferry uh, food to relieve the uh, the Belgian uh, uh, 
uh, food issues, um, and they are not going to try too hard to uh, to sink their uh, to sink any vessels carrying uh, food for this humanitarian relief. But again, it's like the logistical difficulty of okay, uh, theoretically, America is allowed to do this. Do they have the ships? Are they willing to actually navigate? Like, you know, it's it's even if there is this tacit agreement, you're still navigating through a war zone. There's mines, there's U-boats, there's just accidents. Uh, you need to actually get the food from somewhere. Food is expensive. You've got to ship it. You've got to pay for the shipping. This is all expensive. So the U.S. ambassador to Britain is like, hey, buddy, uh, you seem to be a competent guy. Uh, you, uh, you have any ideas? So immediately, Herbert Hoover uh, creates kind of his um, probably most uh, politically significant uh, uh, political organization, the Committee for the Relief of Belgium, where they sort of expand their mandate uh, not just to um, the immediate, like, okay, how can we dump some food here for the immediate problem? But how do they actually set up a long-term logistical network? And he, uh, again, pulls it off. Uh, he, he essentially seizes control of all competing charities, either by depriving them of funds or just kind of absorbing them into this organizational effort. And leverages a lot of the same business uh, contacts uh, that uh, he was able to relocate the uh, American civilian population of the UK into now going the other direction and trying to get food and financing uh, to distribute a pretty large amount. I mean, you're talking about tens of millions of people uh, of food uh, into Belgium. He spends the next uh, four years essentially uh, managing uh, this problem where he's juggling the United Kingdom and Germany who would like nothing more than to actually starve the competing population into submission. The American government, uh, which uh, is still playing at neutrality at this point and definitely doesn't want any uh, problems. And he manages, despite his um, sort of obstinate uh, personality, to uh, convince, browbeat, uh, cajole uh, everyone into a agreement that something must be done and that we're going to uh, do this whole project uh, using only private funding. Uh, having floated uh, the initial seed capital out of his mining fortune, he gets a series of donations from prominent Americans, a massive PR blitz, and actually solves the problem. Like Belgium did not starve when they quite have, quite easily could have turned into a you know Poland into nineteen forty four scenario. Do uh, well, do, how, be, do, do Belgians how, know that? They care. You know, uh, the last time I uh, I asked a Belgian. Um, it was not about Herbert Hoover, but it seems like the guy deserves quite a few statues there. Yeah. How, how exactly did he actually get the food there? Was this American grain being, or was this grain that he was organizing from around the world or other parts of Europe and, you know, making deals to get this food into, into Belgium? From what I understand, it was American food, American ships, um, and they had to figure out the uh, 
the situation of where they were going to actually ship things because a lot of the ports had been blown up um, and landing directly in German ports would make the British think that, okay, well, obviously the Germans are going to at least skim some of this. They also set up like their own local currency because of course, like you also don't, I mean, Belgians aren't Somalis, but you don't want a Somali situation where you're just dropping the stuff off at the port and suddenly it all disappears and you still have a uh, starving population to deal with. Uh, so they set up a system of ration cards uh, for these various foodstuffs. Uh, they figure out the internal logistics of Belgium because, of course, like when you dump this stuff off, you have to get it from one end of the country to another. Like Belgium isn't a huge country, but you're not going to walk it. And the railroads are military facilities at this point. Like the Germans are using them for military troop transport. They need to get approval for everything to go through uh, in a situation where everybody's sort of neutral on the idea of this happening at all at best. So, I mean, it's an incredibly impressive a piece of work that again like i i doubt the logistical feasibility of undertaking anything like this in the current year hmm. so the war ends and where does uber end up well he uh continues feeding uh feeding the rest of the continent <laughs> yeah yeah, didn't he, he like arrange for a lot of the grain shipments to Soviet Union, like sort of post Russian Civil War? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he he expands his logistical network to essentially encompass the whole of Europe, which at this point uh, everybody is uh, everybody is basically starving on the European continent. Um, there had been some uh, poor harvests. There is an obvious lack of manpower. Um, the industrial machinery was all beat to hell for obvious reasons. The logistical network was destroyed for obvious reasons. So he decides that he's going to rebuild the logistical network of trade, communications, transport, and finance. What was his, what was the idea behind this? Was he kind of assigned this or asked to do it, or was he doing this out of his own cognizance and his own sense of like moral, uh, righteousness? This seems to be the uh, the sort of task that he had assigned for himself. Like he he asks for more authority in the service of this mission. So he does get uh, a government um, appointment as uh, a U.S. special representative for uh, economic relief um, or something to that effect. Uh, Wilson sends him over. Um, uh, sort of with uh, uh, diplomatic backing, I guess, or recognition, um, despite the fact that this is still uh, after the war, there may have been some government assistance, um, but this is still a lot of uh, private uh, private relief. So, I mean, and at this point, we're not talking like, uh, you know, post-World War II uh, uh, Morgenthau plan where the explicit uh, attempt is to uh, use starvation as a genocidal uh, weapon. But at this point, there's only an armistice. There's still not a peace treaty. And there is a distinct possibility that war is going to re-erupt. Like you have a series of revolutions happening inside a lot of these countries. Like Germany uh, has 
massive uh, communist rebellions that take over a good chunk of uh, Bavaria. Um, you know, the Soviet Union obviously is established. Austro-Hungary breaks apart. Italy is in shambles. Everywhere just incredibly sucks and is at each other's throats. So arranging to coordinate, okay, but everybody's got to be fed. I mean, as far as a lot of people are concerned, they'd rather not actually see these grain shipments go through. So he, there's a lot of uh, obscurity or like security through obscurity that he uh, endeavors to create where a lot of where precisely the food and money is going is not actually legible to any of the governments involved. It's just sort of uh, a borderline smuggled um, so that nobody really has to take responsibility for, but hey, we're t still technically at war. Why are we um, letting uh, you know the shipments of food uh, through uh, you know through Belgium and into Germany on uh, French railroads or whatever? So whoever, once he is kind of done with this, he moves into uh, sort of the housing commission, right? And then he also moves into secretary of commerce under Harding and Coolidge. Yeah, uh, it's sort of the obvious um, uh, play, I guess, at this point. Like, he's an incredibly ambitious guy, and he floats the idea... I mean, he had previously floated the idea of running for uh, governor of California, which would have been a disaster. And he floats the idea of running for president. And he had some amount of support. Um, but he does this sort of uh, shrewd negotiation that results in he's not really a natural kind of politician politician. He's a he's a competent guy. He can organize systems. But getting people to uh, believe that he actually represents their specific interests as opposed to this is a guy who kind of would be in the abstract good for the country. Uh, that's something that he is not uh, ever really good at. So uh, Warren G. Harding, um, I guess the Republican nomination, he wins the presidency and he appoints him Secretary of Commerce, which uh, the Secretary of Commerce doesn't do anything. Uh, even back in the day, it re didn't really do anything. Uh, they uh, they do a small amount of like import export uh, yeah, certification, like trade and tariffs. I thought. Yeah, I mean the State Department does some of that, but the Commerce Department does some. So even there, their authority is. Well, uh, do you know what their mandate is? I mean, I I don't know what really it is. I just sort of assign commerce it's just like you know, all, that, all that money stuff oh no not the money stuff that's treasury right. it's like all the just business stuff that's usually where like you stick uh some like prominent businessman donor type yeah, yeah. um like uh was it wilbur ross yeah uh, that yeah. uh yeah but i mean he, is, he has I mean, they, they run the census some... if it happens to be a census okay. year but, but uh, ross usually has it's had not. some role though in the presidency trump presidency with uh, the trade and tariffs being uh, enacted and he actually was a big lobbyist before he became um commerce secretary which a lot of people have used to kind of wonder about his conflicts of interest because he has a lot of um, ownership stakes in these types of industries that the trump administration has put up uh, protectionist tariffs around but that's uh, that's just modern day stuff so he, he kind of takes this nothing burger mandate and he's like, okay, well, what's the maximum 
degree to which I could construe my theoretical uh, authority. And if I do a good enough job, nobody will actually complain and I'll get to retain that. So he's like, okay, well, what are, what do we got uh, commerce wise? Like what would be handy? Well, it would be nice if, uh, you know, we had uh, some standardization around uh, air travel so that uh, we could have regular schedules and, uh, you know, safety standards and we could you know, deliver things by mail uh, with accurate timetables. That would be nice. We need a federal air administration or aviation administration. He founds the FAA. They've got a lot of problems with like, okay, well, we've got all these radio stations. Like radio is, is cool. It's important. Um, it's a great way to communicate, uh, but there's competing standards uh, and, uh, you know, people interfering with other each other's uh, transmissions. So he found the FCC. Uh, he, that, that, those are like, pretty uh, big accomplishments, actually. The, those administrations, I mean, as you know, libertarian as you may want to be, even Ayn Rand recognized the importance of the SCC in allowing broadcasts to happen. So oh, yeah. even like your hardcore libertarians who are like, oh, it should all be property rights, auction it off to the highest bidder. You still need to actually define the spectrum and define what you're auctioning off and what the parameters are. It's like even in in Ancaptopia, probably you're not just going to be able to blast gamma rays into your neighbor's apartments. I mean, maybe I guess you'd have to find a. Uh, Find somebody from Ancapistan who finds that a good finds that to be a good idea. I'm sure you could find one, but uh, most of them stop a little bit short of that. So there's this whole standardization mandate. Uh, this is also the time at which uh, you have things like electrical sockets um, being uh, standardized. They've got like consistent uh, uh, some housing policy stuff. Like anything where it's possible to uh, claim the kind of Department of Commerce mandate for setting standards as a uh, fig leaf for uh, enacting like a fairly significant policymaking apparatus, that's the tack that he tries to take on a meta level. Like, oh, we like because it's in the Constitution. The there's a bit in there about uh, the. Feds have responsibility for standardizing weights and measures, which has been kind of construed as, okay, well, they get to say what exactly is 4140 steel or whatever. Like how how often are your gas pumps uh, calibrated so you get a gallon of gas each time? Um, things of that nature, but he uh, sort of blows it out into what's really kind of the uh, the forerunner of the modern administrative state, which we've talked about before. Uh, but in a way that is honestly seems to be relatively ideology free. Um, I mean, ideology free is also an ideology. Um, it's kind of this generic, uh, as Hans was saying before, public private cooperation standardization to uh, improve the ability of American industry and commerce to operate. Like that's that's sort of what he's uh, what he's trying to accomplish here. He's not trying to blow up the system. He's not trying to um, kind of in state power for power's sake, like FDR did. Um, but he, uh, yeah, he, he takes kind of the maximum extent of his, uh, theoretical portfolio and he makes it stick, which is a political accomplishment. Like at this time he's operating like a 
politician trying to get sign off uh, for these things in Congress, trying to get uh, industry on board, uh, trying to get other departments on board. Like he is managing these relationships. Did he ever uh, leverage his personal wealth or his, his liquid assets or anything like that to, uh, uh, I mean, I guess today he'd be donating to a super PAC, but did he ever tr- attempt to utilize his wealth to achieve political uh, success in any way or, you know, like use his money to mountain information campaign or did, was that not really his 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 style that he focused more on just the efficacy of what he was accomplishing i mean there were uh, public relations campaigns behind these not kind of the the modern uh pr campaign where uh you know some publicists cast cash some checks and then uh stories mysteriously appear on your uh, your local broadcasts um, right. but i mean his personal wealth he um, kind of had a liquidity crunch, I guess, uh, during the war. Um, but uh, by the time he's Secretary of Commerce, like he's, his investments, uh, I think, are at this point still making him a fairly wealthy guy. Not like you know Rockefeller rich, but he's he's prosperous. Um, not to the extent that I think that his personal fortune could have uh, sort of independent uh, political impacts on the level that like you know rockefeller foundation could um but he's doing okay warren harding dies uh ignominiously um strokes out um after having accomplished uh, the feat of being our first black president uh and uh calvin coolidge uh just decides hey things are good uh, they they call him Silent Cal. This is like real uh, AP US history hours, but his governing mandate is effectively like things are fine, keep him rolling. He has the, the greatest the greatest quote of a president of all time: "The business of America is business." Kind of like sum up the whole Calvin Coolidge, Herbert Hoover paradigm was. <laughs> We're going to get this money train rolling, guys. We're going to be the best in business on the whole planet. We're going to do everything possible in this country. Exploit every single market. Not in a, not in like a Trumpian, like, we got the big plans. We got the best plans. We got so many plans. You're going to be sick of planning. We're going to be making lots of money. Just like, you know, you guys build railroads, right? You're still building railroads? Okay, cool. Keep doing that. Like that was the uh, the governing style uh, of the day. Yeah, it was more of like, what do you need from me to continue accomplishing the business you're in? Because I'm not really interested in you not doing business. I mean, it, it's it's not well, a hands off approach, but it's it's more of a how do we ensure that there is full employment, that everyone is you know getting the services they need, that there's a value added to the economy year over year. It's it's a very simple philosophy, and well, it's not like laissez-faire, but it's also not what FTR ended up trying to do. Yeah, I, I don't know enough about Coolidge to comment. I, I just have to ask the question, what really did that entail? I mean, my really limited understanding and general impression of Coolidge, though, was that he kind of was like I, a guy sitting at the desk, and he's like, okay you have five minutes. Tell me why I'm listening to you. And I didn't get the impression that it was like, what do you need from me? I will give you what you want. 
that's more of like what a lobbyist dream is and no, well, a lot it's not, of it's, uh, pork barrel, you know, pumped out of Washington in that case. I, I just got the impression it was like more or less affair and don't, you know, just don't don't rock the boat. And I don't I don't want to be bothered with this. That was but I, well, I don't he know. Believed I don't know. In, he believed in public private partnerships the same way that Hoover did. So That's it wasn't kind of like it wasn't a corporatist a uh, approach. Yeah. Well, he was a he was effectively a corporatist. I mean, he 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 was a CEO of America type, like a very calm, steady CEO. And his whole frame of mind was how do we add value to the economy? And, you know, when I need to allow things to just work themselves out, I will. But if so-and-so comes to me and says, you know, we're having a dispute between labor and uh, ownership, okay, I will go step in. It was kind of like the Teddy Roosevelt model at times. But at other times, he was less keen on engaging in, you know, uh, witch hunts or going after trusts or going after the large money makers. Coolidge, you know, basically uh, believed that, uh, and, and Hoover and, all, and that whole generation of guys who were in the White House at that period, I think believed effectively, um, we have a great economy, we're not gonna screw it up. And when we need to step in and help a business along or help a market along, we will. We're going to mostly stay out of it and we'll resolve disputes as quickly as possible. And I think that his approach was the ultimate kind of fusion of Roaring Twenties business idealism and Teddy Roosevelt style. You know, I'll step in when I need to and I'll get the job done as quickly as possible. you know, please leave me alone. Don't talk to me. I don't, I don't. I don't want to waste my time. Kind of thing. So Calvin Coolidge decides um, he's already been president for a term and a half and has no uh, interest in running again. Uh, Herbert Hoover uh, decides this is his moment. Uh, he's going to run for the presidency. Um, finally, the the slate uh, is clear. He was just in a uh, Republican presidency, so he, despite you know not being at all really ideologically opposed uh, to uh, anything in the Democratic Party to the extent that there even was an ideology, which was a lot hazier back then. Um, anyway, he seeks and uh, manages to acquire the Republican presidential uh, inauguration or uh, nomination, uh, and runs against Al Smith. Uh, just, uh, it's Catholic, it's Catholic guy. He's a, he's a Catholic New Yorker mutt. who's like made up of, of every European ethnic you can think of at the time. He's a very, uh, very, uh, controversial figure. Interestingly enough. Yeah, Al Smith's entire platform was basically like, oh, you got to get some more whiskey in here. <laughs> well, that, was, that is- was essentially the, the entire like political saliency uh, of there. And Herbert Hoover is meanwhile like, well, we should. Uh, it's clear this isn't working out, so we should probably form a commission to study what we should do about this prohibition nonsense. Well, Hoover had this argument, and I remember, I think, I learned this actually in Ken Burns' Prohibition series, which is not half bad. Um, but Hoover had this argument. And it was basically just job numbers. And he was like, we're holding back three, four million people. I think that was the figure from employment. 
and we could jump back into this export market legally. I mean, everyone knew that the U.S. was exporting and importing a ton of liquor and raw supplies for liquor uh, all over the world and all from the world. Um, but he basically looked at it as just an economic boom, like, well, you know, we could stimulate employment, we could export, uh, we could revive some, revitalize some industry that surrounds the beer making business and surrounds the, the liquor business, uh, you know, could be good, you know, well, yeah, let's form a commission, let's study the effects, let's wait five years, you know, I think that in private, Kirkman from Vancouver, like, didn't really care about prohibition, he, he wasn't a drunk, although, like, people tried to make him seem like a drunk, he just thought it was sort of silly because it had led to syndicates and it led to crime and it, it had created this massive illegal import-export market that the U.S. government had no real control over. So it's a blowout. Uh, the uh, the nice Anglo-Protestant uh, uh, population of the country decides that they don't want a... Uh, a puppet of the Pope in Rome uh, to be elected to the the highest office in the land, uh, ushering in a, a sort of uh, what's the uh, what's the thing we don't like? Not uh, not unicameralism. Oh, uh, uh, yes. Thus defeating the the menace of an integralist state. For, oh uh, God, yeah, integralism led by New Yorkers would probably be hell on earth. If I had to, if I had to guess, you know, all of those like really hilarious anti-Catholic propaganda posters from around that time where it's like the Pope is an octopus controlling the world. <laughs> and it's just the, the, the lowly American farmer and his family standing up to him. Uh, that's, it's, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> I'm going to say that anti, uh, Anti-Catholicism uh, as a political movement is I, I think probably the, the funniest, uh, the funniest uh, one if you're going to pick one. Problem. I mean, I, yeah, I, yeah. Those, those octopi, yeah. there's quite a few of them. They come in many shapes and forms. You might even call them shapeshifters. Uh, and they were definitely pervasive around this time. I, I think they get Arcella, a bad rap. You know, the, the Soviet Union. National Reconnaissance uh, organization uses them on their satellite rockets. Oh, I think yes. they're unfairly maligned. I think they're they're smart. They uh, they can the breathe breathe water. Creature. Yes. Yeah, the octopus has been maligned by certain shape shifting interests. We uh, don't need to abolish the octopus. We need to abolish octopusism. You're right. Exactly. Octopusness. Well, here's 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 a question. Uh, why exactly did the Republican Party get behind Hoover? Like, what was it? Was he just did he prove himself he as the smartest man in the room, or was yes. he just yeah? Everybody agreed. This guy is the most competent American. Well, <laughs> what about like the uh, the donors? I mean, that's you know the the party is ultimately an was there even like the a donors, donor structure and... in place then? Oh yeah, the business yeah. people yeah. in favor of him. Therefore, he got the support of the Republican Party. Therefore, he became a Republican candidate. Kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, he, he wasn't contrary to any uh, any Republican constituency at this point. Like, I mean, he wasn't uh, 
he wasn't like overtly hostile uh, to civil rights or uh, Midwestern farmers or uh, uh, kind of the silk stocking uh, industrial base. And that's basically like the Republican Party at this point. And everybody had every reason to believe that he would do a really good job. Like he just spent the previous like 30 years uh, effectively uh you know, doing a, a sort of a miniature Thomas Jefferson act. I mean, I mean, really, honestly, a little bit more so because a lot of the founding fathers were uh, sort of uh, landed gentry of one uh, form or another. Um, you know, there are obviously a few uh, like Benjamin Franklin who sort of made their way up from nothing in commerce. Um, but Herbert Hoover, everybody agreed this is an objectively uh, competent guy. He wants the presidency. He will probably uh, be good for uh, the country and for our guys specifically. Everybody's going to make a lot of money. Kind of like Alexander Hamilton, had he lived longer, would have probably yeah. wound up president and was widely agreed to be one of the smartest men, if not you know the smartest guy in the room often at the time. And uh, you know, was involved in numerous business ventures. Had had a very storied life. Came from uh, sort of impoverished circumstances at times. And you know, I, I think that you're right in that Hoover would have fit very well amongst the founding generation as the the polyglot uh, sort of exemplar, where he's good at everything and he knows how to tackle any given situation and has a, a wide network and money and can kind of do whatever he needs to do, regardless of the challenge. And he's really the last one of those, as far right. as I can tell. Uh, like uh, every president up until um, Trump has been some form, like between uh, Hoover and uh, Trump has been uh, some form of working your way up the, uh, the cursus honorum. Um, to varying degrees. Um, but you know, well, first you achieve, uh, being governor, then maybe a Senator, and then you get the nomination by like shaking the right hands. And then you ascend to the, uh, the podium. I mean, Trump being the one exception and Trump is sort of a unique circumstance. So, uh, everybody's like Herbert Hoover knows what he's doing. Going to be great for business. Uh, and then, uh, everything goes to shit. <laughs> Things do not go well uh, for Hoover, Herbert uh, Herbert Hoover. Uh, this so the sort of idea that um, you're going to have like a benevolent administrator president um, doesn't really comport with the way that the presidency operates at this point. There's vastly more cooperation from Congress required to do anything. This is before the FDR um, imperial presidency and the real solidification of the uh, of the uh, administrative state. Like it's all well and good to be like, oh, we should regulate uh, in the sense of make regular uh, the airwaves or airline travel or what have you. Uh, it's another when you've got deeply opposed political interests over things like tariffs, where you just have irreconcilable uh, differences of interests between different groups that you need to actually cause you know, in-group to win and out-group to lose. 
that's something that Herbert Hoover really had not done before. Like he was not adept at uh, let's arrange a screw job um, for the benefit of our guys. So he immediately runs into uh, problems um, with his sort of like, oh, we should form a commission or just kind of outsource the decision to Congress uh, uh, approach that he takes uh, initially. Um, as things kind of, uh, you know, amounts to an abdication of responsibility on his part. Uh, there's some crime waves and heat waves, agricultural shenanigans, but then the economy uh, decapitates itself. There's the stock market crash of 1929. Uh, the economic history kind of gets a little bit fraught. Um, here, um, there's still kind of disagreement about uh, to what extent um, Hoover's policies were sort of like the maximum possible versus uh, in the end insufficient or if they might have worked uh, given uh, more time. He does uh, like the, there's like this caricature um, uh, that he's some sort of like a, a libertarian president and he's just like, oh, let them starve in the street. Like the economy needs to sort itself out. That's not at all what happened. He massively increased the federal budget. He got a huge spending bills through Congress. He got agreements from, at least initially, from a private employers, a large private employers not to do layoffs. Um, but this wasn't like the fascism light of the FDR regime. Uh, and it certainly wasn't the full war economy that actually ended up solving the uh, the problem. So regardless of uh, his efforts, um, they're either miscalibrated or insufficient or require a level of intervention that's just politically not possible structurally in America at the time without a sort of Mussolini light figure like FDR. And his reputation is now uh, destroyed. He basically makes, he spends the entire presidency just dealing with one crisis after the other uh, on top of a, a gigantic ongoing uh, economic crisis. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's easy to look back and, and say woulda, coulda, shoulda. And I'm not saying you're doing that. Uh, plenty of others have done that for the depression. Um, but you're right. I mean, the New Deal, which was FDR's mandate or platform when he ran and then got elected in 33, didn't really change or move the needle uh, at all until the United States got involved in the war. And so even though he was increasing the amount of federal government inter interventions and involvement in the U.S. economy uh, to the point where they're, they're literally killing livestock to try to support prices in some bizarre inversion of economics 101 um it didn't really do anything any any more or, or less than hoover did uh it would seem and a lot of people point to the failure of the government uh squarely on the monetary policy and the gold standard which i prefaced a little bit at the opening of the show i don't know if we want to get into that um but Again, is that really something that the president is supposed to know about? Perhaps, um, but this is also somewhat unprecedented in uh, in the world, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Now, others have argued that it wasn't unprecedented, and there were 
similar uh, events like this in the 1800s uh, where there are banking failures and things like that. Uh, but uh, the Depression is a hotly contested topic. So I don't know how much we want to get into the details, but I, I just wanted to agree that yeah, overall... I, it's... To be clear, like FDR uh, probably... I think the the consensus of most economists, uh, including like not just crazy Austrian guys, but mainstream economists, is that uh, FDR uh, and his policies significantly prolonged the Great Depression um, until like you know full war economy um, circa like 1939. Um, well, I I have not but, heard that specific critique. What what did FDR do in their mind uh, prolonged the depression? Um, so uh, clamping down like a restrictive fiscal and monetary policy okay. are the primary ones. And so he like he actually gold or he made it illegal or something bizarre like that. Yeah. I mean, but that was essentially so that um, he could dictate the price of gold in a uh, deflationary manner, uh, which is, the opposite of what yeah. you would want to do yeah. uh, if you were uh, if you were trying to actually expand the uh, the money supply like with like doing it, now. I think didn't we have a great depression show sometimes I yeah forget we get how long we did been doing this mm -hmm. like but uh, FDR's policies we, we about Rothbard. like there, there's this <laughs> there's the straw man of like Herbert Hoover the libertarian and like FDR as uh, this this like Keynesian stimulus modernist believer thing that's just not true. Like there's a ton FDR of, there's did a, ton a huge of amount of contractionary. FDR didn't even understand what Keynes was talking about. I mean, there's yeah, like FDR famous, didn't like, have a fucking yeah, clue. Yeah. It, it it was literally about control. Like he essentially tried to enforce like complete federal control of the economy to a ridiculous. A degree like you know throwing people in jail for growing food on their own land is uh <laughs> that's, that's that's like maoist like, well <laughs> you know? that, i mean that's essentially what stalin was doing contemporaneously yeah, that's right collectivization like, and, like you, you have to understand fdr as exactly in the same uh political trend of uh state control suddenly becoming technically feasible and politically possible that generated the substantive economic policies of Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, um, the various um, like tin pot fascists of the, uh, the various Eastern European countries like pre uh, outbreak of war, but they're like, they really are more similar than dissimilar. If you look at the substantive economic policies of like Mussolini versus FDR, like this isn't ANCAP, uh, uh, like everything I don't like is Hitler. Um, it's, uh, it's like an objective assessment that when you create a administrative bureaucracy that becomes tremendously more intrusive in the lives of your citizens, regardless of whether you think that's a good or a bad thing, the other contemporaneous examples of that uh, were these totalitarian states. And yeah, I mean, Great Depression has been beat to death, but the point is Herbert Hoover, not a libertarian, and FDR, not a cuddly democratic socialist. So 
Well, well I want to make a quick point. If you go to like any of these libertarian sites, like I went to EconLib and before this, just to kind of remind myself on some of the Hoover economic policies. And this is one of the results that came up when I was looking around the Library of Economics and Liberty. And if you go to this site, you go to this article written by Stephen Horowitz. Uh, uh, God, I'm having flashbacks. Too. It's, you know, it's basically shitting all over Hoover for being like a socialist. <laughs> like, it didn't, like, there's this part. That's right. He didn't this- build enough Hoover, um, Hoovervilles. <laughs> I mean, there's this part in this article where it talks about in 1930, Hoover basically killed all immigration into the United States and or most of it and the article laments that this was yet another sign intervention in the free market private global labor market that could have helped price fixing and all this stuff they they do the same thing in the wikipedia entry and i I stopped reading after that i'm like okay like uh historians agree that this was a a form of ethnic cleansing and i'm like jesus christ I mean, the Wikimedia I mean, Foundation uh, SJWs agreed. I mean, I just it's it's I mean, there are other good articles and papers I read in preparation for this, but this one just stuck out to me. And, uh, you know, what's interesting is that I think Hoover gets cast as the libertarian goofball who fucked the country by everyone who's not a libertarian and the libertarians believe fundamentally that he was not libertarian enough and he should have let the economy bottom out and everything would have fixed itself at some point you know uh i mean it's it's the greatest like counterfactual that sells gold on conservative talk radio it's like well if only the government didn't do this then everything (laughs) would be fine and but buy gold because they keep doing this and it's like okay guys like if if the government like just disappeared, I don't think everything would be fine. It, it's not that simple. Suddenly, your gold would be worthless if the government disappeared. I'm yeah, sorry right. to say. Yeah, some like warlord would take it from you. But uh... exactly. Yeah, I mean, I I just I I think that the history the historiography of Hoover, um, and I think Hank's done a great job so far of kind of um, setting the record or correcting the record on it. The historiography of Hoover is so skewed because you can never just see him as the man he was and what he was trying to accomplish. It was, you know, more uh, either he was the the goofball libertarian business, cold business exec who didn't care, or uh, to the libertarians, he was this dumb socialist that uh, interfered too much with the economy and was an inspiration for FDR. there's no, there's not a lot of just standard uh, history of Hoover that's not biased and tries to determine what it had, you know, the the market not been primed for this sort of crash. I don't really think Hoover had much to do with it ultimately. Um, what would Hoover's economic outlook actually look like, and what would his, what what would you know the the 1930s, maybe even a re-election, you know, throughout the 1930s, the the Hoover Herbert Hoover uh, uh, decade, effectively, what would that have looked like? And, you know, how how different would the United States have been under that sort of uh, associationalist model of public-private partnerships, of expanding public works, but also 
allowing you know large and small company growth across all sectors you know would hoover have overseen the dismantling of prohibition uh i think there's a good chance he probably would have so you know there there was there's maybe an alternate timeline where uh hoover went down as one of the great presidents of the united states yeah i don't think there was an i mean the other thing about fdr was that being uh insanely uh mad with power uh he was the only president uh to seek election beyond two terms if you do that with hoover i mean even with like ideal economic policy like there are other uh countries that had uh uh more uh, just based on their pure monetary policy they were able to kind of get themselves out of the depths of the great Des- depression by the but mid 30s did very quickly right. but none of them were doing fantastically so i mean even if hoover would have somehow gotten like did some sort of a uh, massive pr blitz look up look at all the things that we're actually doing um if he had more effectively prosecuted the uh the 32 election. I mean, if you're, if you're just in office in that time period, uh, I don't think you're going to leave with a sterling reputation. And frankly, like, I mean, the thing about this being the time period where you had the, the political constituency and technical feasibility of this kind of new administrative state, that was something that was coming. I don't think that there was like a future, for the United States that did not end up with some massive federal bureaucracy, um, certainly post-World War II, but at some point in the lead up to that. Like, I think that was already in the cards. And I think that the American uh, kind of political immune system was insufficiently advanced uh, to prevent that from happening. I, you know, he might have done like a better job. I think he probably would have done a better job than FDR in just straight utilitarian terms uh, had he been uh, by some miracle reelected. But I don't know that America would be in a substantially different place to get uh, today if that were the case. And you don't you don't think that hoover was ultimately opposed to the building of the kind of administrative state he was more in favor of it and maybe would have just tempered it differently yeah i mean it's administrative state is a little bit of a fuzzy concept like i think he would have definitely avoided um, some of the more grotesque uh, aspects of the the new deal Um, My claim is more about like that that sort of thing was in the cards uh, once he was gone, regardless. Uh, I mean, his his, uh, sort of post presidential uh, campaign about I mean, it wasn't a a presidential campaign, but he he gave these like lecture tours about the effects of government overreach. This is a vague. Basically, Herbert Hoover does a Ben Shapiro act. (laughs) <laughs> like that's that's a that's a cheap shot like I'm, yeah I'm sorry, Herbert, you should apologize but, immediately it was like ah oh, uh we're putting people on the dole it's antithetical to the free market principles that made america great and, i mean there there is a hoover institute you can uh target your ire at uh today 
They who's do that they guy? Do who, who's that guy Thomas who does Soul. the Charlie Rose? Yeah, with like people like Thomas Soul at the table. I, well, I, it's, I never... it's Peter. It's Peter Robinson. Is, is the guy you're okay. thinking of? Yeah, the glasses. Yeah, yeah. He he has the same interviewing style. He's like <laughs> kind of like. So you Tucker. say in like this Tucker, book yeah. this, but I propose to you X. Explain. Yeah, I, I like him. Like, I, I'll admit he's like yeah he's. I, I've 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 watched those videos for years yeah. and it's he's awesome, but it's the same <laughs> the same kind of uh, GOP wasp style of you know conducting an interview. It, <laughs> it it's definitely a lost art amongst most of the press, I think. Well, I, I really think it is uh, catnip for libertarians because it's just it's all about the issues. It's like, well. It's it's clear that you know the evidence shows and policies. That's right. (laughs) It's all about getting getting the uh, the strategy and the the system correct, and there and then everybody will fall in line. Uh, It's 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 very uh, charming in in a way, if not completely naive. He writes a lot of books um, post his defeat um, about sort of. anti-socialist type stuff he does some stuff um uh in europe having to deal uh mostly with uh food relief uh takes a fun uh fun vacation to uh herman goering's uh hunting lodge uh grotto and uh chills with uh chills with adolf for a while uh doesn't really like him that much uh but uh he you know, I don't. I wouldn't say that he did anything terribly significant uh, in kind of world historical terms for the rest of his life. Like he did stuff. He uh, there was a, a Truman Commission on reorganizing uh, the executive branch. Like people sort of uh, slotted him into this elder statesman role, where when they needed they needed somebody with legitimate advice um, for some governmental. Uh, problem yeah uh they would often tap hoover um it, either just asking him for advice or just like having him chair it, somebody correct me if i'm wrong but that sort of thing is somewhat rare it has happened uh and and maybe it's become more rare over time but i i the only other examples of like a, a, a competing parties uh current president hiring uh the other parties former president was with uh, with Nixon. Actually, Clinton had Nixon as an advisor, and I I'm at a loss for thinking of others. But uh, like, can you ever imagine the Democrats or even the Republicans bringing Trump on after he's out? Well, that was how the that was how the system was initially envisioned in the United States, where the you know the opposite party's lead presidential candidate become the vice president and. That was conceived, I think, as a way to prevent too much political infighting. But you're right. I mean, Nixon has been one of the few guys in a very long time to actively recruit and work with Democrats. Uh, and, you know, the way that Pat Buchanan tells it, Nixon really liked Spear Agnew because he didn't take shit from all those black writers. And, and I think Maryland, <laughs> he... It's like Spear Agnew went out and did this press conference where he's like, yeah, I'll condemn the, the, the racist Southern governors, but you better start condemning all these uh, these uppity black nationalist types. 
and uh, you know that's why Nixon thought he was a, a good pick. Yeah, Jimmy Carter did a small amount of that in the Bush administration. Uh, not uh, not a huge amount, but you know, he he was out there. He was uh, yeah. he did some. Uh, Habitat kind of, for Humanity was his thing. He was doing all yeah. that partnership. Yeah. Besides the charity stuff, like he did some yeah. international relations, uh, like special uh, envoy stuff. Um, he did the. I forget if the North Korean negotiations were under Obama or um, uh, Bush that he uh, participated in. But he would be. There's also like an age bracket thing. Like you know, Nixon was dead. Uh, he died in like. 92 or something uh you know uh reagan was senile uh hw was uh like who know you don't want to ask that guy for advice no, nobody tr a, nobody uh, trusted him knife in your back exactly. um, you know clinton is uh too busy uh on various islands like obama's just chain smoking so like it, it, the fact that hoover was the last kind of objectively externally competent uh, president means that that's basically your, your only go-to guy. There have been plenty of examples of like ex-secretaries of whatever with uh, kind of externally validated uh, competency being called in uh, by the other uh, party for advice. That's like almost routine. Yeah, they had like uh, General Gates uh, being Secretary of Defense, I, I thought, across administrations or at least serving yeah. in some government function. Yeah. I mean, do you think that uh, we'll ever see anyone like Hoover again? Any sort of, you know, calculating, uh, cool as a cucumber businessman type who gets involved with large government projects and then eventually, you know, wins a very popular election. It's possible. I mean, you can I mean, say, you... say Bloomberg was sort of uh, the, the most recent example <laughs> of that, but obviously there's huge differences in some other areas. But Wrong, wrong religious and ethnic composition. Yeah, well, okay, I'm not going to say <laughs> Trump because, you know, to answer your question, I mean, he's been completely maligned and ineffective yeah. for various reasons, but... Um, you know, having somebody who's allowed yeah, to do this like thing, it's like successful, but not, I, I would not use the adjective competent to nobody was like, well, I mean, some people said it kind of as a rhetorical maneuver, like, oh, you've succeeded in real estate. It's very competitive. There's got to be something going on there. But it's like, if you needed a particular problem solved, you wouldn't be like, I, I got to get Trump's opinion on the best way to do this. <laughs> yeah, he just, he's like regurgitating <laughs> yeah. like Wall Street well, Journal you gotta headlines. Find the, you got to find the best people, folks. You got to find the best people. You yeah. got to put them in charge. You got to say, I'm not walking away here without a great deal, a fantastic deal. He would just, he would call up Larry Kudlow or, or one of the other Fox business anchors and ask them what they would do. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever he saw on TV, he'd <laughs> get some, get some guy. Um, yeah. No, not Trump. Um, I mean, sure, it's possible. I, I don't know really what the U.S. presidency is anymore, if, if it wasn't always like this. Yeah. But the, the role is increasingly irrelevant. It's just been completely neutered of any actual power. Uh, I think Putin said it best, you know, when the U.S. president is elected, despite whatever his campaign was, a bunch of black men or a bunch of men in black suits, I should say, <laughs> come in, come in, 
<laughs> well, uh, recently, yeah, I think that's uh, both has been true. But um, the uh, Kanye, notwithstanding, and bunch of all that. colorful men. Yeah, I mean, uh, the CIA doesn't uh, discriminate at all. A bunch of men in black suits come in and basically tell him why he can and can't do things, and and effectively the president has been neutralized. Um, I, th- I think that's remember how when Zuck now. was running for president, or like. Going and petting. Oh cows God! For yeah, he was like standing in front of cows, and he's like, "How can we apply this process to humans?" And that was just the, 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 the joke, the joke that was going around. But uh, God, yeah, what happened to him? That was well. He was remember he was taking pictures at like car mechanics or automobile factories, and he's like, "Today I've learned how things are made." It's really important that we expand our knowledge on how things are made in America, and it was just. Honestly, I want him to understand less of how things are made. Uh, the less he understands, the better. <laughs> I do not trust yeah. that guy as far as uh, I could. I could sneeze. I mean, he's just—he's just such a smarmy guy. You go, you go to the Dupont factory and you're like, "Don't show me how things are made. This is a terrible mistake. I, I don't want well, to know any of this." Even if you're, even if you were kind of, kind of like. Uh, there's a tendency now that kind of things are settled with Hoover um, to kind of look at him uh, with a more concreted uh, perspective. But it's like at the time you could uh, like if we were putting on kind of our contemporary politics hat and somebody with Hoover's bio showed up, it's like, oh, he uh, made a lot of sketchy deals in uh, in China. Uh, a lot of uh, faked uh, contracts. Probably has some uh, you know Chinese baby mama on the side. Like you know, this character, you know, there's something about him. I don't know. People uh, people say he rubs him the wrong way. Like he doesn't have a soul or something. Like people would be making all sorts of you know unfriendly autiste uh, memes about Herbert Hoover. I'm not sure that uh, we would. Uh, we would recognize him as the uh, the friendly autiste. Well, uh, a guy I knew once uh, once said Adlai Stevens uh, Stevenson, whatever his name is, uh, was kind of akin to maybe not Hoover's success in business, but a qualified, thoughtful academic. In in his mind, that would have been a a good person to be president. Um, I don't necessarily agree, but in some ways that type of personality uh, who didn't win, I think has difficulty because you're, you're just not strong on the charismatic uh, side. And, uh-huh. and especially today with reality TV presidents and Hollywood stars becoming governors, I don't know if that guy would ever actually end up anywhere. And perhaps that's, uh, that's true for Hoover's personality as well. You know who it would be? Uh, in contemporary American uh, politics, Do politics uh, or, or business, or I don't know. I thought you were going to say uh, like, well, it, it would, your your Hoover guy is uh, Bill Gates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Suddenly, I'm a lot less interested in, in seeing another Hoover figure. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you've got somebody with like uh, like a, a empirical. Uh, personal success in business and uh, finance uh, post that who's run like various uh, public spirited campaigns at varying levels of uh, efficacy, um, you know, vaccines in, in uh, 
Africa, etc. Uh, with a uh, a nice COVID uh, vaccination program under his belt. Like, I mean, if he wanted to run for the Democratic uh, primary, people would take him more seriously than they took Bloomberg. Yeah, it seems like the establishment has aligned around the guy. Um, and pictures of him with Epstein notwithstanding, it seems like he might even be viable on some, probably the Democratic Party, but... Uh, I don't know oh, yeah. if people people trust him. Again, it's with this media and social media and all this stuff. There, there are just a, a lot of deep suspicions about Bill Gates. Um, and it, it's funny, like this generation didn't grow up necessarily with the antitrust uh, suit, but people really did not trust him back then. And I think he's spent the last I think that 20 was like years. A tech nerd thing, like I, I don't. No, think it was anyone... a normie thing too. Uh, normies saw him as as very. Uh, dangerous and sort of malicious uh, even. And I, I just remember people, my, my peers at the time who were not very interested in the, the technical or the business side of things, just saying that about him. So I would imagine uh, people um, of that generation might remember that, but I don't know these days after his uh, big PR campaign with the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation, if that would, be effective but nonetheless i mean in our circles there's been a lot of criticism of him for sure uh so I, i'm just curious about <clears throat> the uh, the mainstream reception of him I, I i actually do think he's somewhat of a damaged candidate in that regard so i don't, I don't think that he has any uh political ambitions oh either. why why would he need it i mean again the way yeah. things operate you're you're less effective in in the white house you might as well just work, you know, continue working as as a private private citizen with all the money he has. So, Hoover Herbert Hoover, final thoughts. I'm going to say, uh, I don't think that it's any any uh, a secret that we've got a lot of uh, engineers kind of in association uh, with uh, you know our circles. Uh, I'm going to say Herbert Hoover, engineer president, gets a bad rap. Impressive I, guy. I agree, and that that's a that's a killer damn that uh, his name is on. I uh, I think he could have been a great president. I think that uh, he is an ex- he was an extremely accomplished man. He exemplified many of the better qualities of uh, American business practices and uh, the American working spirit. Um, and is probably underappreciated for the scope and scale of his life, given where he came from and uh, sort of the the stock of his uh, his form- formative years. My fellow citizens, this broadcast tonight marks the beginning of the mobilization of the whole nation for a great undertaking to provide security for those of our citizens and their families who, through no fault of their own, face unemployment and privation during the coming winter. As an important part of our plans for national unity of action in this emergency, I have created a great national organization under the leadership of Mr. Walter Gifford to cooperate with the governors, the state, and the local agencies, and with the many national organizations of business, of labor, and of welfare, with the churches, and our our fraternal and patriotic societies 
so that the countless streams of human helpfulness which have been the mainstay of our country in all emergencies may be directed wisely and effectively. Over a thousand towns and cities have been well organized and experienced unemployment relief committees, community chests, or other agencies for efficient administration of this relief. The amounts sought by the committee in your town or city are in part to provide work, for it is through work that we wish to give help in keeping with the dignity of American manhood and womanhood. But much of their funds are necessary to provide direct relief to those families where circumstances and ill fortune can only be met by direct assistance. Included in many community appeals are the sums necessary to the vital measures of health and character building, the maintenance of which are never more necessary than in these times. The federal government is taking its part in the aid to unemployment through the advancement and enlargement of public works in all parts of the nation. Through these works, it is today providing a livelihood for near 700,000 families. Measures have been adopted which will assure normal credits and thus stimulate employment in industry and commerce and in agriculture. The employers and in national industries have spread work amongst their employees so that the maximum number may participate in the wages which are available. Our states, our counties, our municipalities, through the expansion of their public works and through tax-supported relief activities, are doing their full part. Similar organization and generous support were provided during the past winter in localities where it was necessary. Under the leadership of Colonel Wood, we succeeded in the task of that time. We demonstrated that it could be done. But in many localities, our need will be greater this winter than a year ago. While many are affected by the Depression, the number who are threatened with privation is but a minor percentage of our whole people. The task is not beyond the ability of these thousands of community organizations to solve. Each local organization, from its experience last winter and summer, has formulated careful plans and made estimates completely to meet the need of that community. ...will meet the needs of the nation as a whole. The possible misery of helpless people gives me more concern than any other trouble that this depression has brought upon us. It is with these convictions in mind that I have the responsibility of opening this nationwide appeal to citizens in each community that they provide the funds with which, community by community, this task shall be met. This is a time and this is an occasion when we must arouse the idealism, the spirit, the determination, the unity of action, from which there can be no failure in this primary obligation of every man to his neighbor and of a nation to its citizens that none who deserve shall suffer. I would that I possess the art of words to fix the real issue with which the troubled world is faced in the mind and heart of every American man and woman. Part of our national suffering today is the failure to observe primary yet inexorable laws of human relationship. Modern society cannot survive with the defense of Cain, am I my brother's keeper?